Hello everyone, welcome to Anthony's History here. Um, Rebecca Radil, fantastic historian, broadcaster, author, uh, owner of HistFest, London's best history festival, got in touch. She said she's <laughs> she's alarmed by some of the weird, ill-informed historical parallels being drawn between corona outbreak and the plague, the Black Death of the medieval and early modern period. So she wants to come on the podcast, set everyone straight. So I said, definitely. So here she is. If you are worried about corona, if you are worried about uh, any of the issues raised in this episode, please, please, please follow your local public health authority. And, and if you can, make sure that when you're amplifying messages, when you're sharing, retweeting, emailing among friends, please, please, please make sure that they're from uh, official sources. This is not a time for the internet, for Twitter, to be at its worst. Um, you can go to our TV channel and watch Rebecca Radil talking about the 17th century. You can also watch other wonderful historians like Victoria Taylor, aviation historian, talking about the strategic bombing campaign in the Second World War. All of that exists on our Netflix for History. Uh, it's called History Hit TV. If you use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, you get six weeks to try it out for free. So uh, after listening to this podcast, please head over there and do just that, historyhit.tv. In the meantime, everybody, here is Rebecca Redeal talking plague. Rebecca Redeal, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. The word is you're getting frustrated. You're an expert in 17th century uh, pandemic outbreaks, and you believe there's a, a pandemic of bad historical parallels going on. Uh, yeah, a little bit frustrated. I just think um, it's always risky and sometimes a little bit dangerous to make comparisons between what's happening in the present and what happened in the past, particularly when things are entirely different. <laughs> well, let's get into it. Let's talk about these medieval pandemics. What caused these famous outbreaks? So medieval um, and early modern plague, or otherwise known as the Black Death, um, was caused by, well, we believe, I mean, there's debate, but it was caused by um, the bacterium Yersinia pestis, which would infiltrate a body, whether that be a human body or um, an animal body, with toxins, and the, the person would then contract um, plague, and that would see them have a very, well, more often than not, have a very slow and painful death uh, whereby they would um, suffer, I suppose, flu-like symptoms to start with, but then they'd become delirious, they'd develop the infamous buboes that um, would grow on lymphatic glands, so under the armpits, in the neck and the groin as well, um, and then they would slowly um, die. Um, mortality rate with, with medieval and early modern plague was around 60 to 70 percent. Um, it's hard to say for definite, but we think it was around that, that number. So yes, that was the very um, wonderful <laughs> black death of the um, early modern and medieval period, a very painful disease, which claimed the lives, estimates put the medieval occurrence at around half of Europe um, losing their life, well, half of Europeans losing their life to plague. Um, and then during the 17th century, which is the area that I study more specifically, we can look at figures for isolated incidents. So in 1665, for example, the plague of London um, took around 100,000 lives of the 450,000 inhabitants of the city at that time. It is interesting, curious that it's followed that same route from Asia, Iran, northern Italy... Uh, to the UK. 
It's true, actually. That and there was an awareness of that at the time as well. Um, Dr. Nathaniel Hodges, who was a physician in London during the Great Plague of 1665, did note that it had arrived to arrived in England. He believed through bales of um, cotton that were trans transported from the Netherlands to England and then before that he claimed that they had um that plague had made its way to northern Europe via Turkey and beyond but of course there's always risks and um really important risks to to be aware of here that when you label a geographic area as being the source point of a disease whether that's plague whether that's spanish influenza whether that's um any other number of of diseases um more often than not it also encourages and goes hand in hand really sadly with xenophobia and sometimes racism as well so that's something that has been true throughout history when it comes to disease um it's a very difficult um fact i suppose to to navigate why don't people get the plague today or at least very very few of us do well, we don't get plague today because there's a cure for plague. Um, it was towards the end of the 19th century that um, scientists finally understood what plague was, um, its biological makeup, and how it could be. Then later, how it could be prevented and also um, cured. So obviously, we know about the arrival of antibiotics in the 20th century. If you were to contract plague today, um, I mean, there are hot spots around the world where it does still happen, but you would statistically you would be extremely unlucky um because it is very very rare and if you were to get it you would um more than likely survive um because of the cures that we have here's hoping dude listen you're such an expert in the 17th century what give us a sense of what it was like uh, in english society when those pandemics broke out was there any form of of messaging of of public health care yeah, there were the, there was um, public health. So when the plague, um, when, whenever there was a plague occurrence in the early modern period, um, plague orders would be issued, and these pretty much stayed the same um, for well for over a century um, almost. They these plague orders would stipulate um, how citizens should behave. So. Um, if somebody was found to have plague or suspected of having it, that they, they would be shut up in their houses um, or quarantined for a period of um, 40 days. The outside of the house would be marked with a red cross. Um, they, there was also provisions to have guards outside the houses and they would be tasked with um, passing food into the home um, to sustain the inhabitants. Obviously, when plague got to an ex extreme levels during outbreaks like the Great Plague of 1665 and also in 1603, these provisions broke down slightly. So, well, I say slightly, they broke down. We don't know how much. So obviously, there were lots of people that not only had plague, but they would find themselves without the key provisions that they needed. So food and um, sustenance and that kind of thing. Other than that, there were also quite cruel things by today's <laughs> by today's measures. Plague was associated with public disorder, and in 1603, you find lots of plays with a Y um, emerging, kind of looking exploring this theme. So Ben Johnson wrote a play called The Alchemist, which is about a home that was left, you know, deserted during plague time and um, taken over by by a so-called alchemist and his comrades. And they just get up to all, all kinds of um, trouble in London at that time. So there was this association. But because of that, anyone found to be 
to have plague sores wandering the streets would be whipped. Um, that was one of the orders that were put out there or um, executed in some cases as well. They were the orders too. So there was a very severe public health um, response, I suppose, to, to plague. Did any of these special measures work? Um, I mean, lots of the medical, like medicinal things did not work whatsoever. And some of them with 21st century eyes are just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I was looking, well, revisiting some of my research recently, just given the um, coronavirus. And one of the ones that always always makes me smile. I mean, it's kind of desperate in a way, but official play guidance in 1603 advised and well advised ingesting toast sprinkled with vinegar and made with rose leaves and cinnamon. And those that were too poor to buy vinegar or cinnamon were told to simply eat toast with butter on if they could. And the, one of the quotes here is, for butter is not only a preservative against the plague, but against all manner of poisons. So remember that next time you're buying your clover. What effect did plague have on society at the time? I mean, did, did it make it less cohesive? Did it loosen the, the bonds that bind us? It did. And I mean, there is this, as I mentioned before, this this idea of um, of a breakdown in public public order um and it did do that and it also did severe damage in some cases to whoever was tasked with leading the country at the time so I, i've mentioned the outbreak in 1603 this happened just after the death of elizabeth i and it was believed to be important it was believed to be to have um religious resonance so um one one commentator at the time um saw her death, and I, I'm quoting here, like a thunderclap was able to kill thousands. So it was this, it was linked, disease and pandemics and um, outbreaks were linked to religion and the idea of sin. So it was a, a punitive religious event whenever there was an outbreak of plague, people must have done something wrong. So it often led to a lot of, you know, thinking about about the wider society and the ills of society and what, what people had been doing wrong. But equally, um, it also caused extreme poverty. So in times of war, you get examples of um, sailors that would have ordinarily been with the Navy being discharged. And actually, um, one commentator described them as living like more like dogs on the street than um, humans because they were just so poor. You know, there was a breakdown in industry in the country as well. So it did have many, many effects, cultural effects as well. So let's come to today. What are the key differences between now and these outbreaks of disease in the 17th century? Obviously, there are similarities. Now, we're, we're very, in the Western world and in um, Britain, we're, we're very sheltered in many ways from, from disease. I mean, the world in general, we're sheltered from, from these mass outbreaks of disease and these mass pandemics because we live in a world of 21st century medicine. Um, so whenever we have, you know, whenever there is an occurrence like this, scientists are straight away trying to create vaccines and, you know, if they can, a cure as well to these these diseases. So right now we know that a vaccine is being developed and I think it's on the brink of being tested. Um, so, you know, that's that's great, and that's why I would much rather live in the 21st century than any other period before. But it, it does get a bit frustrating because 
It's terrible. I mean, obviously, anybody that's affected by disease, it's a deeply sad situation. But I think at the same time, for the wider public, we have to keep in mind that this isn't the Black Death. Um, you know, th there isn't a 70% mortality rate. Um, it's not, it, you know, we're, we're not locked into centuries of bad science. We have 21st century science. So the outlook isn't as um, stark as it would have been several hundred years ago. Um, but on the flip side of that, one thing that is interesting is how quickly it can travel in 2020 because of our global transport networks as well. And it's interesting objectively. It's interesting looking at the patterns and where it's been, coronavirus I mean, where it has been, has been travelling to um, and the cities that it's been affecting. What's the role of a historian at times like this? Does, is history important? Oh my gosh, what a question. <laughs> is history important? I don't know. Is it important? <laughs> Um, yes, it is important. It's important, I guess, because because the plague is this. It's one of several events in in British history, the Great Plague, that kind of sticks out. It's um, as being this fundamental moment, I suppose, in our collective um, cultural history. So it's understandable that whenever there's an outbreak or a, a, you know anything similar in nature, to draw upon these previous examples. But I think the role of a historian is to in these instances is to perhaps just to say as I'm doing now that it's not the Black Death <laughs> I mean it's it, it is you know a, a serious situation but it's not you know the outlook is not abysmal. Are there any useful lessons anything that you've learned that you think is relevant? Useful lessons from plague prevention I suppose one of the things that ha is tried and tested and was was used during medieval times and early modern times and has been used you know since time immemorial really is is the idea of quarantine and um you know looking for measures to slow down the progress of of a disease and i guess right now um i mean i'm not a scientist so if you know any scientists are listening then please feel free to tell me i'm wrong on twitter or anywhere else um but i guess from my point of view, this idea of slowing down the progress of a disease gives scientists time to do the work that they need to do, and then hopefully more you know more people can be vaccinated before it progresses further. If that makes sense. What about culturally, as a society? Uh, I was talking to someone the other day about the fact that Jews were often turned on when there were outbreaks of disease. Um, do we have to be mindful of, of that kind of scapegoat and that kind of othering? Oh, yes, absolutely. So one of the most unfortunate things about um, historic disease and dis disease, you know, in the contemporary world as well, whether that's the Black Death, whether that's leprosy, whether that's um, cholera, whether that's the Spanish influenza, is the way that it goes hand in hand almost always with an othering of a section of society. And it's one of the most unfortunate and um, sad things to happen um, during disease because it it encourages or makes, makes space for um, xenophobia and often sometimes racism as well. And we need to be very mindful of that because we've seen it happen in the past. Um, we've seen it happen, you know, more recently and... It's just something to be mindful of because we do know, you know, disease travels, but we, we have to be careful in how we how we um, view that disease. What about the long term, the strategic effects of the disease? Did did England 
change after the Black Death? It's hard. It's a really hard thing to measure. And it's also a really hard thing to comment on because change can happen in in small and huge ways. So it's been quite widely commentated upon how the Black Death had a big cultural impact. And we do see lots of visual imagery um, relating to plague from that from that period. And um, also the period that I look at specifically, the 17th century, pamphlets have these images of skeletons, um, you know, dancing upon cities, just to represent the idea that death is always is always close at hand. But then you also, in the early 17th century, had a burst of of plays and um, pamphlets, pamphlets, I should say, by the likes of Ben Jonson and also um, Thomas Decker. So it does have it does have a cultural effect. It also provides space after the incident, I suppose, to have a real you know, look at how we deal with disease and whether our measures, um, contemporary measures are fit for purpose. And I imagine that after the outbreak of coronavirus and, you know, however that progresses over the next few months, there will be a period of, um, of you know, looking at uh, looking at um, the measures that were taken and whether they were the correct measures and, you know, what they actually achieved. But one thing that, just going back to this, this um, burst of... Um, cultural commentary on on plague during the 17th century one of the, the my f- most favorite quotes is from Thomas Decker who wrote lots of the lots of plague pamphlets at the time and he was a real advocate of not he wanted to take it seriously but he did think that you also needed to re- retain your humanity and what it means to be human so he really um argued that humour is an antidote to despair. And he, he one of his quotes is that, if you read, you may happily laugh, tis my desire you should, because mirth is both physical and wholesome against the plague. So laughter, one of our best weapons. Well, apparently. But I do think you, I do think, you know, the very nature of being human is retaining your humanity and disease so often dehumanises people in ways that we can't really imagine unless we're experiencing it. So um, I think, yeah, I think maybe that is one of the things that we should be should be doing a bit more of. But Charles II's government didn't have a sort of sudden massive burst of public improvements after bouts of the plague. No, although there was, they did clean the streets and they did they did work to remove debris or. And by debris, I mean um, mess, but also there were lots of dead cats and um, dogs in the streets of London um, during the time. And they'd obviously, well, not obviously, but I assume um, the, you know, the mass death of these animals had was linked in some way to the spread of plague among, amongst humans. Um, so cleaning of the streets and making places hygienic as we would understand it, though their, their idea, I mean, their um, mentality behind doing this was rested upon um, the theory of the four humours and also the idea that bad air would encourage disease. So they were more concerned with getting rid of bad smells. And obviously to do that, you have to get rid of rotten things like, you know, creatures and rubbish and all of, all of that um, business. So there were there were changes and there, were an awareness, there was an awareness of what needed to be done to reduce the spread, but it was locked into flawed medicine. As ever, I, I'm fascinated to know what our descendants will be saying about our attempts to, to wrestle pandemics. Yeah. Lovely. Now, remind us about the books. One of yours has even got plague in the title, hasn't it? It has got plague in the title. So my book is um, 1666, Plague, War and Hellfire, 
um, and it is a little bit more cheerful than the title suggests. It certainly is. It certainly is. Oh, Histfest uh, 2020 it will be coming up at the British Library between, well, from the 3rd to the 5th of April this year. And we've got a whole host of amazing speakers there and performances, workshops and um, all manner of things. And tickets are on sale now if you if you like that kind of thing. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith. In you. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, everyone. Just massive favour to ask if you could go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, give it a rating, five stars, obviously, uh, and then leave a glowing review. That'd be great. My mum is getting overwhelmed with the amount of different email accounts she set up to leave good reviews for me. So you're going to have to do some of the heavy lifting. Thank you.